0: We talk about a little bit of everything here on the podcast, but I will forever and always love a conversation with an entrepreneur who is just killing it. And today's conversation with fashion designer Rebecca Minkoff is that. She is an industry leader in accessible luxury handbags, accessories, footwear, and apparel. Her modern bohemian designs are inspired by strong, confident, and powerful women who embody the effortless, free-spirited lifestyle. And what's so rad is that Rebecca's story is 20 years in the making. It is a lesson for any of us who are pursuing a dream to never give up, to learn to iterate, to believe in your intuition, and to continue to show up for your customer in a way that makes sense for you. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Rebecca Minkoff. Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis, and this is my podcast. I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do is the Rachel Hollis Podcast. I feel like this is a conversation that I've been dying to have for a while. I think as long as you've had a podcast, I've been like, oh man, I would love to chat with Rebecca just because there are not a ton of examples, I think for female entrepreneurs of who we can look up to or aspire to. So I would love, I'm sure you've told it a million times, but would you just tell us the story? Like, how did you get here? Because this is a a many decades, at least two decades long journey for you. And I'd
1: love to hear like how it all came together. Sure. So I actually fell in love with sewing and design when I was about eight years old. I just wanted a dress. That's how it started out. I saw it in the store window and I loved it. My mom was like, no, not buying it for you, but I'll teach you how to sew. And that is the last thing your eight-year-old self wants to hear. Uh, my eight-year-old does not want to hear it. They just want the damn dress. But what I discovered when she began to teach me how to sew, we went to, I think it was like Joanne Fabrics and uh, got a Vogue pattern. Um, was like, oh my gosh! I can make anything out of nothing. This is this is amazing. I just became hooked, and then as I got older into my horrifically awkward teenage years, where uh, you know the braces, the buck teeth. I was really thin, like painfully thin, and could I would drink protein shakes to gain weight, and nothing fit. Like I'd go to a store, and you just couldn't buy anything. So the fact that I could take matters into my own hands and make my own clothes and alter my own things was very exciting to me and gave me a lot of confidence. So I became hooked, ended up at a performing arts school as a dancer, but they were like, you're too tall and your boobs are too big. You cannot perform. And I spent the bulk of my time about four hours a day in the costume department. And just, again, fell in love with creating these these, uh, costumes for different shows And so about the time that people were starting to look at colleges and and what school they were going to apply to, I just felt like I needed to get to work. And I felt like I had to go to New York and nothing was going to stop me. And so I guess a lot of this, you can say, like, I'd never let my kid do this. My parents were like, yeah, go to New York. And I was like, cool, the apartment. And they're like, no, we're not paying for that, which is a theme, a recurring thing of no. And my friend was at Fordham University and he snuck me into his dorm room every night. And he just let me stay there as long as I could until my parents made a deal with my cousin and said, she'll watch your daughter if, if, you can, if she can sleep in your daughter's playroom. And, and I was able to secure an internship with a designer. So I made, I think, $3.25 an hour. Um, but I couldn't have been happier and more excited. Like I was actually working in a fashion company designing. Well, not really. I was not designing yet. And that was how I got my start. And I worked there for about three years. I eventually rose in the ranks. And I was working on my own thing on the side and the CEO knew that and was okay with that. And she could see that my passion for what I was doing far outweighed what I was doing for her and the company. And so she basically gave me a, an an option right after 9-11, right after I had tasted the first smell of success. She's like, either you devote yourself full time or you got to go. And I know you got to go. So goodbye. And I'm here for you and you're fired. And I was like, wait, no, I don't, uh, I, I, I have one shirt that I'm selling to one retailer. And she's like, goodbye. So she was, she's great. We have a great relationship, but that was kind of the beginning of my brand. And that was, 20 years ago.
0: Wow. Can you believe it's been 20
1: years? No, it feels, does it an, feel like that. It doesn't. It doesn't. I don't know how you feel about your start, but I feel yeah. like it, it's like, I can't believe that's what 20 years is like, but then I still have so many residual emotions of that time that it feels like that time is suspended. Like you still are like, can I, can I pay for something today? You're like yes i can i'm a successful person but you still have these things of like is con ed going to sit outside my door like they did when i couldn't pay my electricity bill you know you still have those things that are very visceral absolutely it feels like in in reviewing
0: your um your your history your bio that you've had a series of things that just hit like you had these the i love New York t-shirt or that first bag that went so wild. Like you've had these moments of like explosion. Were those planned for? Was there intentionality behind like, this is going to be the thing? Or do
1: you feel like that was a bit of just fate and kind of like going with what the universe was providing? Definitely not planned. The shirt happened because I went to the Bahamas. I really liked how in Aruba they were cutting up the shirts and adding beads to them. And I was like, I love that idea, but I don't want to say Aruba. I want to say New York. And Mm -hmm. I came home and I made myself one. And then my sister-in-law wanted it. And then this actress saw it and wanted one. And then I literally sent it to the actress, Jenna Elfman, um, on 9-9-2001. So I was just sending it to her just because she wanted it. And then she wore it post 9-11 on Jay Leno. And back then TV had, you know, moved, moved mountains and actually could grow brands. And he asked her on national TV, like, I like your shirt. Who is it? And she said my name. And so that was how that shirt became huge, but it was literally just like, oh, this actress wants your shirt. And wow. Yeah. And then for the bag, it was actually her again. I, I call her my fairy godmother because she said to me, I have a bag that's going to be, you know, really prominent in a film I'm doing. Can you do you design bags? And I lied to her. And I said, yeah, I do bags. And it actually didn't make it to set on time. Um, FedEx delivered it late and I was devastated. I was like, this is the first designer purchase. I, this was, is was my last $1,600. Every fund, you know, every dollar was precious what the hell am i going to do now because my clothing business is is not it's like bumping along and we're doing okay but i'm going into debt and i can't really pay the bills and i'm working another job and what is my future here and i started carrying the sample around and enough women stopped me that i was like oh you know people really like this bag and so a friend of mine who was a buyer at a store i said can i show you this bag and you tell me what i should do and she fell in love with it and she said Not only am I going to put the bag in the store in LA Sateen, but I'm going to get my friend at Daily Candy to write about it. I don't know if you remember Daily Candy. Oh,
0: Daily Candy was everything. Everything.
1: Yeah. So So they wrote about it and it exploded. Then it was, that was it. It was so, you know, sometimes I hate to say the word fate because it puts it in the hand of, I didn't do anything to cause this. Of course. But I do feel like the hard work paid off and sometimes you get those breaks. And then sometimes you don't, like I was chasing, you know, many years ago when we started to see our biggest best-selling bag kind of die down sales wise, I chased a hit for three years and I kept trying to recreate the formula and it wouldn't, it just wouldn't like nothing I did went. And then, then it did, you know? So sometimes you just can't force something like that.
0: And Sofa's at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Debit card users, listen up. You've worked hard for your money. Now, it's time to make it work even harder for you. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can get cash back on everyday debit card purchases. A couple of things that I'm hearing kind of it, from an outsider's perspective is one, it feels like you've been really wise about how to leverage press or how to leverage an influencer before we called them that. Was mm-hmm. that something that was instinctual to you or were you just
1: kind of testing to see what would work? And is it a practice that you still pull in today? It's definitely a practice we still pull in today. I think that when we looked around the landscape, again, this was you know, 15, 16 years ago with the bag, we didn't have any money. We didn't have outside capital. This was all on my brother and I's back. He basically was funding this on his Amex. So, so we didn't, we had to think out of the box because we didn't have, you know, banks wouldn't loan to us. We couldn't get an office lease. I literally convinced my landlord for my apartment. I said, rent me another unit in this building. You know, I pay rent on time and that'll be my office. And so I think that we, we, the minute, you know, you could have an online profile and go onto a forum, like the purse forum, or when Facebook became not just for college kids or Twitter, it was like, great, we'll be there. Cause we can talk to our customer because we can't advertise and how do, how do we reach her? And so it became our method of just talking to our customer. And then when we saw traction, we were like, great, let's double down. And it wasn't without, uh, stress and pressure. I mean, we had, you know, heads of stores and magazine saying, if you talk to your customer, we don't think we can carry you. You are dirtying yourself. She is beneath you. And we just were like, uh, this is scary. We're going to say no to your face and we're going to keep talking to her. And it, it wasn't without the fear, you know? Wow. Yeah.
0: It's interesting because that's so common now to be in relationship with your community but back then it was supposed to be this sort of separation like that made you exclusive or or sort of this upper echelon if you didn't chat through uh, the other thing that uh, i find really interesting is that you had all these moments where things hit but having been in business for a long time i also know that like you have to be ready for that you have to have the infrastructure for that the processes for that the the goods to provide if something goes like was that a struggle for you or you feel like you, you navigated it
1: well? I think we're in a vastly different time today with expectations of product. I mean, I literally had one one style in like 100 different colors that I offered for a whole year. You know, now we have 300 SKUs per month that we offer. So that wow. puts it into perspective of like, all I had to focus on was just delivering one bag. And it wasn't all, but I had one factory, one bag, one leather vendor. So it wasn't, it wasn't as hard then as it is today, because now I think customers are trained of like, I need new, they're like goldfish. You know, we we all are, and they're not just customers. Like I want something new and fresh and shiny and sparkly. And if a brand doesn't come at me with something new, I'm just like boring, but it was slower back then.
0: Yeah. So it was a bit easier to navigate. How did, what did the growth look like? Um, You know, you sort of have these things that hit for you. And then you talked about chasing something for three years. Like, was it pretty steady in an upward direction or were there times where you're like, Oh crap, this actually isn't going to work.
1: Yeah. So the bag hit in 2005, that was the morning after bag and then growth was nice and steady. And then in about 2008, 2009, actually during the recession, we had dinner with, I think it was Saks and we were all like, cheers to the year, cheers to our tiny business, let's grow it. And they were like, we just want to let you know that if you have a five in front of one of your bags when we come to see you, uh, as in 495, 595, which was the original pricing, which was considered extraordinarily affordable pre-recession, they said "We, we won't be able to carry your bags or we'll drastically have to scale back and don't take anything out of the bag, don't change it, don't change the leather but figure out how you're going to get this bag for a hundred to $200 cheaper. And so we did, we went through the exercise knowing that our growth was at stake and we took the prices down, not because we figured out how to save the money. We just said, we just won't make money. We'll just, that'll be fun. My brother was like, have you ever heard of the Wrigley's model? You make a lot more and maybe you get to negotiate at some point in that process that you, you save money. So no one else in our space did that. We were the only brand to come down in price and you you didn't see anything happen for three months. And it was the most nauseating feeling. I got my first gray hair. We were like, what did we just do? We just took away any profitability and now no one cares. And then I don't know why, but it hit three months later. And then we had this huge, like hockey stick growth. I think it was like 548% over three years where the growth was insane because the consumer changed, right? She didn't have what she had before. And she's like, this woman's listening to me, you know? That's incredible. You talked
0: about your brother a lot. And I know that there are listeners who also work in businesses or are building businesses with family. Can you talk about navigating that or maybe best practices for you?
1: Yeah, so we're very honest and open about the fact that it's whoever you work with, sibling or not, it's rocky because you are dealing with, as we spoke about, I think before we started, like it's always a bumpy ride. There's no coasting. And then you add an element of someone who's grown up with you and can push your buttons in ways you'd like to forget. So we have definitely had as much terrible times as good, if not more terrible times. And the thing that I would just recommend to anybody is to really get what you need and want out there with that person. And they do the same with you so that you're on the same page and that you do that a lot. You know, I'll never forget when I had my first kid and I suddenly worked, wasn't working 12 hour days because I wanted to really be the mom to this baby he felt like I abandoned him at work. And he was very resentful of the fact that I know how, he had a family life, but I'm not trying to love all men into buckets, but they just have a different reaction to what family life is. And I was like, I'm a breastfeeding mother who likes to cook dinner, believe it or not, and give my kid a bath. Yeah. and I'm going to be home for that. And so he felt resentful and abandoned and that showed its ugly head in, in different ways. And so I think you have to almost constantly, and we do this about once a year, we have a mediator we do it with, but like, this is good, the bad, the ugly, how, we, how do we get back onto the same page? How do we like recommit to each other? And so I think you need to do that as partners because it gets really hard. And then, you know, add to that, not sleeping, super stress. And then people say really terrible things to each other. So
0: Yeah, it's been been
1: rocky and great. And there's no one else I could trust more. And he has my back. But you really have to have communication be smooth.
0: What is it like to have done this for 20 years and keep it fresh and still be excited about it and still want to show up to work, especially after you've achieved a certain level of success? Like, how do you do you reinvent or how do you make it feel fresh after all this time?
1: I think that for me, i realized that I have to be learning something new and I can't be always doing the same. You know, I reached a point in 2018 when I was going on my third maternity leave. I say that I never really had a maternity leave, but on, on, on what I call like a joke of a maternity leave. And I was like, I don't ever want to decide what zipper tape color or what What Pantone number is on the thread of this jacket? I said, you know what? I did that for 16 years. I'm still the designer, but these granular details, like I can do something else. And and just making that decision and taking a team of 18 and having all of them report to me and having now one person who has to make those decisions and filter to me, right, freed up a huge amount of my time that I was like, I got to learn something new. And I started my podcast during that time. I started my nonprofit, the female founder organization, and to be able to start something again from nothing and discover the good, the bad, the ugly, you know, with my podcast, I had signed with this agency or whatever distributor. And they were, you know, they had all these like oh, she has 900,000 followers. She's going to get 30,000 downloads overnight. Like we don't have to do any marketing. And I launched and I had 3,000 downloads and they were like, we're going to return all the advertising we sold against this podcast and good luck. So to be able to start something new and have it be hard, figure it out, achieve success for me today is what fuels me. And so I love getting my hands into new things, whether it's overseeing the creation and concept for fashion week or, you know, our next press event. Like I don't just have to be a designer now to feel fulfilled. And that's what keeps it fresh and new. And and then learning the business side many years ago, my brother said, you can't just be a designer in your ivory tower. Like you have to become fluent in business. And I really resented him. I was like, that's your job, but thank God I did because I'm so much better as a designer knowing how business works.
0: TravelTexas.com slash get your own. What does the future look like? You know, you have the nonprofit, you
1: have all these different things going. What do you dream about now? We are launching a couple more categories at Rebecca Minkoff. Home is coming to you next year, which I'm excited about. And some other ones I can't talk about. So we definitely want to solidify you know, being in every part of your life, on your face, as your scent, on your sheets, in your you know bag, and then all you know with the female founder collective, I think we've just scratched the surface. There's 12 million women-owned businesses in the United States. All of these women probably started their businesses with a passion, and you know, speaking as myself, not all of the experience needed to succeed. And so, if we could bridge that gap, education-wise. To help women not on how to take a selfie or puff a pillow, but really the, the hard, difficult business things that I never knew in the beginning and, and to enable that woman to succeed. Like that's, that's very exciting to me. And I think when COVID has sort of ripped off, like, wait, we can actually, for the first time more now than ever, as hard as it's been and as much as have women have taken on disproportionate to men with home and work life, we can actually now begin to define what we want and how we want to show up. Because if it doesn't work within this company, we can go create our own. And I think that that's an right. exciting opportunity for women right now.
0: Yeah. Will you talk a little bit more about the foundation and, and the intention behind it?
1: Yeah. So I, I, again, I didn't have some grand business plan or strategy, but I just knew as a founder, I needed a community and I couldn't talk to fashion people anymore. Nothing against them. But I was like, if I have to hear about what someone thought about the New York times, or did they see the latest thing? I was like, I'm screaming for women who don't do fashion and we can talk about something else. And so I thought, well, if I need a community, there must be others. And if I can learn from these women and I know other women can learn from each other like that, that cuts a whole lot of corners. There's not a lot of shortcuts in life, but there are some. And so that was my simple idea was a recognizable seal that women and and men could shop from and know they're supporting women owned businesses, but then also this community and education. And so we've grown it today to over about 12,000 members, the seals on 3 million products. And we do an incredible amount of education for women from every facet of their business. And so again, knowledge is power and then money is power. And so if you can help a woman achieve both, I hope we'll do a better job with how we take care of our people, how we support women that we hire. And hopefully that changes things for the better.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think that when you empower women, when you give them the knowledge, when you help them to level up, it's it's been proven time and time again that it affects whole communities in a way that it doesn't when it's a man. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I love the idea when I was reading about it today, just as someone who I've been in business for almost 19 years now. And especially when we started, because the internet, didn't exist in the way it exists today, you couldn't find information. I mean, you could read books or maybe go to a conference or you sort of learned on the job, but there are those, I think like the equation for how you have a profit margin and how you grow a customer base and do all these things that can drastically change the way that women are able to help themselves in their communities. If people are listening to this and they're like, I own a business and I am a woman,
1: is it something anybody can join and where can they find out more information? Yeah. You can go to femalefoundercollective.com. We have a membership platform now and there's different tiers. There's free and then there's monthly. And obviously you get more uh, perks and access to things if you sign up for the paid part. But I think that, you know, we wanted to make sure that if you were a woman and you sold part of your business, good on you, that you could still participate. We do ask if you're not Uh, venture capital backed that you own 50% of your company. And if you are, I think it's 20. We just want you to still, you know, some women sell their companies and that's awesome, but then they have no board seat, they have no voting rights. And so it's women owned, but they can't control the destiny anymore. And so we want to make sure that whoever's in the community is still controlling the destiny and decisions of the company.
0: Yeah. I'm, you know, the whole time we've been doing this, interview, I'm looking behind you at a line of clothing and you've got bags. And I was just wondering, are there times in the history of your business where you have made a big mistake with a line, with an idea? And have you been able to track back and go, I know exactly why this happened? Or are there some things that happened that you're just like, we tried our best. It just didn't, it didn't hit. Yeah.
1: I can give two examples. There was a three-year period of me chasing hits um, you know, yeah. our best-selling bag was the morning-after clutch, and it had a certain size, it had a certain price tag, and it was really known for its crossbody. And sales had started to wane, and and I was like, like banging my head against the wall, like of just giving a woman every type of crossbody with the same similar elements on celebrities, whatever it is, on influencers. she wasn't biting and I was trying my hardest and you know my brother would be like we need a hit we need a hit and I'm like I'm trying you know it's like the songwriter you know like call me maybe like I'm sure she's trying to put out some more good music but like no one just just people won't call me maybe from the poor you know (laughs) so it's it's, you get scared. You're like, is this all I am? Can I, can I do more? And then, and then we hired um, someone new in the design team and they brought a fresh perspective and that bag took off and it's still taking off, you know, thank God I'm knocking on wood. So I think, I think you can't force it. And then there's other times where right before I went on maternity leave and we were kind of handing over the creative, I said to the woman who had worked and designed the men's portion of our business for many years. So we'd been in the office together. She knew my style. And I just looked at her and I said, I don't want to hear from you for as long as I'm away. I just need a minute. I'm so tired. I'm over it. I'm burnt out. Like here are the keys to the kingdom. Goodbye. And then I thought I would come back and she'd be like, oh, great. Let's reintegrate you. And instead she's like, we don't need you. You're not wanted here. And I think the mistake that I made is I was like, well, she's more highly, you know, educated than me. She's had more experience working in companies for longer. What, who am I? I just had me and maybe I don't know anything anymore and maybe I'm washed up. And I just went down this, this terrible place of doubting myself and watching what she was doing and being like, that's not right. But what do I know? You know, and then the product hit. And it was terrible, like terrible. Like our customer was like, "Mm -mm, no, not buying this. And all I could do was point the finger at me, you know, like I let this happen. And I doubted myself so much and compromised my own self so much that had I not done that, this would never have happened.
0: I love that you said that because this is the lesson. I always think the universe will keep giving us an opportunity to learn the same lesson and it will get more and more painful every time. And this is my lesson in business. Almost every time there's been a mistake, it's because I hand the reins to somebody else because I tell myself they're smarter, they have more experience. I fall back into, you know, I only have a high school education, and I don't know what. It, but the thing that I know, which I imagine is very similar to you, is I know my customer. I've been in relationship with her for over a decade. I know her really well, and it doesn't matter if someone has an MBA; they will never understand her the way that I do. And so uh, I'm, I'm thinking that you said that today because someone needed to hear that they are handing the reins over and they're giving away control. It's like, gosh, yes, have, be surrounded by smart people, but don't assume that they know your business better than you do. I love that one. To me, being healthy is really grounded in nutrition. Honestly, what I eat and what my kids eat is super important to how we live our lives. It's why I love a company like Thrive Market. Market.com slash ThriveMarket.com slash This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Talking about the idea of like, we need a hit, we need a hit, we need a hit, which I think a lot of people who've experienced big success can absolutely fall into. I know I experienced this in the book space where I have like whole publishing teams being like, write another bestseller. And I'm like, I'll try, but I will do my best. That it means that you begin creating from a scarcity mindset. Like you're creating from a place of fear. And if you're creating from fear, there's no way that you're going to get the results that you want. Is that something like, are you sort of aware of like, Oh, I have to be in the right frame of mind before I'm sort of putting this work into the world, or is it a little bit more organic for you?
1: I think it's different at different times. I think, you know, sometimes you just have to go with the gut feeling of as a designer and creative, what you're thinking and feeling. And then other times it's much more strategic and business oriented, and, and you kind of begin to see what works and what the white space is and where you can sort of insert yourself. And I think a good designer who has a great partner like our president is an incredible merchandiser and, you know, knows those. She can take the business part and infuse it with the art. And that's where I think the magic is for designers, because as much as everyone loves what they see on a runway show, what sells is the underwear, the socks and the perfume for these luxury brands <laughs> or the makeup. For the most part. Right. And so yeah. they know how to balance that, the Gucci shutting down, whatever Hollywood Boulevard last week with, okay, we're going to sell a lot of lipsticks next week, you know? Right. Right.
0: This might be the most important question that I ask you or most important comment that I say this, this whole chat. Um, I'm obsessed with your necklace, like beyond I'm obsessed. Is this your design or... Did I just compliment something that's actually not yours, which would be amazing
1: too? Uh, It's a hybrid. I don't know about you. This doesn't make any sense. But when I am really stressed out about like work and the fate of my company, I usually will go spend senseless amounts of money personally on something (laughs) as some form of like feeling better. Right. And, And so I went. Uh, to downtown LA when I was there and I put it all the pieces together so like I didn't design this but like I bought this piece this piece and this piece and had them make it a necklace
0: that's uh, that's worse because none of us could go get it you're just well, like you oh can I just whipped this
1: <laughs> <laughs> you can go down to downtown LA you can go see Helen and have her make one for you too but this but the shark tooth is mine very is cool mine. yeah very very cool
0: Rebecca, I'm really appreciative of the time today, the chance to get to chat with you. I know you're super busy and there's a lot going on in life. And I am I am inspired by your career and the conversation. So I know listeners will be as well. Tell them where they can find you. Obviously they need to go shop and buy all the things, but you're on Instagram. I know I follow you there myself. Like give them all the juicy details.
1: All right. You can follow me on Instagram at Rebecca Minkoff. You can find out more about my nonprofit Female Founder Collective. You can buy my book speaking. We didn't talk about the book writing process. Oh, we
0: totally can. (laughs) Okay. Wait. So last year or
1: did it come out in 2020 or 2021? The new 2021, June.
0: Okay. So tell us all about it. What was the intention behind that?
1: So the intention behind it was having been in business for 20 years, having had the, you can't make this shit up moments. It was an opportunity for me to say to other women and men too, you are going to need to take a lot of risks in your business and your personal life. And fear holds us back from doing that a lot of the time. I called the book Fearless, not because I expect you to finish the book and whip your hair around me. Like, I don't have any fears, but it's more like you go from making a decision with your eyes covering your, your face and like holding your hands out in front of you to like buffer the fall to being like, what, bring it. I'm scared out of my mind, but here we go. And so, it's these little guideposts of just things you can apply when you're feeling that fear. It is not a mental health book, but it's simple stuff, you know, viewing failure as a learning opportunity, um, why communication is so important in partnership, how you can begin to feel more comfortable taking risks. And so, that was the baby that was born in June and was more work than I ever imagined, which I just give you kudos because it, I was like, why does everyone say this is so hard? And then I was like, Oh, that's Oh, I get why. it. I get it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, why? Like you, I would love it if you talk us through a couple of those things. So you said um, turning sort of looking at failure as a learning opportunity. How have you been able to navigate that in your career?
1: Oh, man, I think that the biggest the biggest thing that happens is we take a fear that is supposed to protect us from bears in the woods or killers or for me, sharks and lakes. And we let that emotion, uh, stop us, which it does stop me from going into a lake, uh, in business and, or taking this risk. And I think that we have to learn to say, okay, this is an emotion that was there to protect us back in the caveman days, but now we can take the risk. And most of the time, nothing terrible is happening, is going to happen. You're not going to lose your house unless you're really making a lot of bad decisions. And, And so I think it's sort of, to stare down at a risk and say, what's the worst that can happen if this fails and what will I have learned from this? Um, and and my book is largely composed of a lot of experiences that people cringe and go like, I can't believe she shared that. Or uh, if this happened, I'd never recover. And it's the idea that this is gonna keep happening, especially if you're an entrepreneur. And then how do you get back up again? You know, And how do you force yourself to say, success sometimes is just the fact that you got back up. You know, you didn't give up and everyone else did. And then you're the last man standing. That is so, you're so right. I
0: can't tell you how many times I'm like, there were so many people who started at the same time or who wanted to do similar things that I did. And I'm like, I'm not smarter. I'm not better. I'm not, I'm just tenacious. Yeah. I just stand back up and I keep trying again and again. And it's exactly what you said. It's like, who's, who's left standing at some point. You're like, damn, this chick will not stop trying. Like we should give her a shot at all of this.
1: Yeah. I mean, even if you look back to the, when we lowered the prices of our bags as painful as that was, none of my competitors at the time did. And now like I can go through the names and you might know some of these, but there was Foley and Karina, Gusto, Botkir, Kuba, all these contemporary brands that were uh, more than four to five times our size. And none of them, they were like, we're not lowering our prices. Like we're stick, you know, and they're all gone and we were left standing. So we got to eat at the table. And so I think sometimes success truly is being able to keep going as, and it's being able to keep going with two black eyes and, you know, broken ribs and, you know, torn off fingertips from crawling. Like you have to know that you're getting back up looking like you've been through it. Do you have a really
0: great sort of circle around you of other entrepreneurs who kind of lift you up and give you advice? And has
1: that been a part of your journey the whole time or is that something more recent? I would say it was a proactive effort in the last five to seven years of seeking out more women in other areas. Prior to that, again, it had been this insular kind of fashion community, but I definitely have my women I can call and cry to or lament to, but it's, it's women that can help me think through it versus my best friend who no offense to her has no idea the complication and depth of what can happen in a business. And so I always tell people like the people you need advice for might not be your closest, like I was there for your wedding and I'm your godmother. It is the people who who know about your business and can actually help help you through those narrow paths.
0: And how once you made the made it a goal to sort of grow that area
1: how did you find those people I think some I met randomly some I connected with that you know I speak at a lot of uh, events and there's always a lot of great women there and so just meeting people and then from from my work with women I think I just I have a lot more ability to bump into these women very cool And do you just raise your hand and you're like, will you be my friend? Or
0: is it it more organic? Hey, let's grab coffee. Because I think this is one of those things. It's like having a mentor, find a mentor and people like, how, how, not only do I, how do I find it? But then how do I navigate trying to grow that relationship in the right way? Once I feel like it's the right person.
1: I like to sort of break down this mentor zeitgeist that I feel like has been spawned upon us in the last couple of years of like, find your mentor. Who's your mentor? Well, did you have a mentor? As like, suddenly like, this is the thing I need. And then all my problems will be solved. Right. And I find that I didn't have a mentor. I literally had women. It happened to be women who were like sink or swim, you know, here are the tools for success. It's on you. And I think if we can begin to think of mentorship as all around us, it's not the busiest person. It's not that anyone will get coffee from you or I and it'll transform their business. It's go get coffee with your logistics person. Go around your organization that you already work in and find the job that you would hate to have. Go talk to that person and learn from them. Because what they can teach you and what you're gonna need to know if you start your own business or just to succeed in yours is so much information. And so I like to think of mentorship more as a 360 versus Let me just hope that the CEO has 20 minutes for coffee. And then let me ask them how they got started, which I have news for you. Will not help you. You know, like I always want people to say to me and I say to my book, like, don't ask for help. Ask for what you need because you've got 15 minutes. Like, what is the one thing that's going to help you? Is it a leather vendor? Is it a factory? Is it a, I don't know, bank, which bank should you work with? Me telling you what I did at 18 will not help you at all.
0: Right. Right. Oh, so good! Such good advice for anybody who's listening, and they're in. They want to hear. The, I'm assuming the book's on
1: audio. Yes, it is on audio. And do you narrate it? I do. I thought oh, it'd be yeah. weird to have someone else narrate my it story. Is. Yeah.
0: Yes, I think it's so odd when uh, nonfiction authors don't narrate. So, if you're listening to this, because our audience is big audiobook people, and you want to grab the audiobook, or maybe you want the physical copy, where can they find it?
1: They can find it on Amazon, Target, Books A Million, wherever books are sold, it's there. Cool. Very
0: cool. The Rachel Hollis Podcast is hosted and executive produced by me, Rachel Hollis. The show is produced by Sterling Coates and edited by Andrew Weller.